Bismillah. Last week we started to consider some of the essential practices of the Sufi path, and we'll continue deepening that a little bit this week. And I want to use the occasion of Maghrib Salat as uh, a time to bring together some of these practices. I'm going to invite us to do Salat in a slightly different way with a slightly different perspective. Most of the time we human beings are inside looking out. You know, that's the egoistic perspective refined during the Renaissance in Western art. Um, I'm going to invite you all to give up that point of view and instead to allow yourself to be seen. Let's pray. Bismillah. The Buddhists have a word, practice. It's a good description. In Sufism we have amal, which is the work. And we're practicing being human beings. You know, in one way, what we hope to uh, achieve or develop is something quite human. Maybe you've heard me say before what I truly believe, that if, if there were no eternal soul, if there were no God, if there were no eternal life, practices that we do would still make beautiful sense and would make for a beautiful life. So what we're doing is we're developing our human attributes. Um, and, you know, the human being can develop in such extraordinary ways and, and get involved with all kinds of extraordinary activities, for instance. I don't know if you were aware of it, but just last weekend we missed, I missed, the annual uh, Machine Gunners Convention over in Bullitt County where thousands of people come together and they use their machine guns to blow up refrigerators and things like that. And I once, it, this was significant for me because years ago I found out that there were about a quarter of a million sport machine gunners in the United States. Sport machine gunners. I'm not talking about military, though. They look pretty military. And I figure that's about the same number of people who regularly read Rumi, maybe. Just to put things into perspective. So human beings can do all sorts of things and develop all kinds of capacities. And we have such uh, incredible gifts. And a really important question we might ask ourselves is, given all the things we could develop in ourselves, all the human attributes, what what's really worth developing? Um, and how will it be developed? So, last week and this week is at least a partial answer to, to that because our, our tradition, which is based in a revelation, it's more than a revelation, it's actually a continuous stream of human wisdom that goes, goes way back in time, not just 14 centuries. There have always been mystics and, uh, I think, in some ways a new chapter was begun in about 14 centuries ago. That's when the Buddhists predicted Maitreya Buddha would come, the Buddha of mercy and compassion. Um, so, but it's very ancient. And I took some of the points that I had uh, listed last time and um, amplified them a little bit. So just as a talking point, we'll pass these out. You know, sometimes we say that the human being is, is more than, more than anything else, the human being is presence. And by the way, there's a light that can be turned on yeah, that's probably good enough, okay. 
that helps and there's also a light over the dining room table that has a it's right here uh, Jim it's on on the dining room table it's a, a remote a white remote do you see it? Yeah. just press the <coughs> top button I think if not you probably have enough light you might have gotten shut off over there So the human being is nothing but presence. The rest is just meat and nerves, a little bit of electrical energy and electrochemical processes, none of which would matter very much if it weren't for this other life phenomenon of consciousness. And presence is like a door, a portal, into an infinite world of qualities. If this sounds abstract, it's not abstract. It's reality, it's what you experience when you really look at it. You know, when we're not absorbed in our superficial thoughts, emotional reactions, conflicting desires, <coughs> negative emotions, all that stuff, and we're not, you know, totally preoccupied with that superficial level of our experience, if we could just sort of burnish that away or move beneath it, move behind it, then we come to another realm, you know, an inner space. And in that inner space, it's a different kind of experience. Experience of um, beauty, tenderness, longing, many things. Um, and the key is presence. And the threshold is presence. And the room is presence. And the window is presence. So, let me read the words I've put down on paper today. Presence is the activation of an inclusiveness. I'm, I should have written. Uh, inclusive awareness that is simultaneously receptive on all levels. Inclusive awareness, simultaneously receptive on all levels, in all directions, witnessing time rather than coerced by it. Witnessing time rather than coerced by it. That's a lot in one sentence, isn't it? Forgive me. <laughs> Presence is the activation. Inclusive awareness, meaning include everything, instead of being like myopically focused in your thoughts or your emotions. Include everything, just open up. Let that awareness spread, spread and, and to be simultaneously receptive on all levels. Physical level, sensations, thinking, emotion, spiritual intuition, all at once, just by being present and not being absorbed and uh, you know, uh, identified with each of those other phenomena. You take a step back with conscious breath, becoming the child of the moment, and there you are, and you're in a different kind of time. You're not coerced. You're not, you know, looking at your watch, where do I have enough time for this? Uh, not being driven. You become, you in, in a way, step outside of time, and by stepping outside of time, or at least partly the master of it, at least master of how you'll relate to it and how you'll be aware of it. Presence is the soul in command. Not the soul as a delicate little thing that's always hiding from impacts and fearful and uh, defensive. The soul steps forward, just as you are. The soul has no fear. What does the soul fear? Death? Humiliation? Abandonment? No. Right? Presence is the soul in command. Presence is the realization of the context of life. Presence is the realization of the context of life instead of being focused on the details of life, instead of being focused on the contents, 
you know, wanting like better contents. Oh, I don't like these contents. I want other contents. Shift perspective to the context. And when you shift perspective to the context, like we did in that room, I said, allow yourself to be seen. Become context. Then your very self is just an expression of something within that context. So presence is the realization of the context of life, the capacity to simultaneously, again, same word, simultaneously, observe thought, feeling, sense, impressions, and behavior. So presence is something not vague and not just a sort of quality that maybe a certain actor has, maybe more than we do. Uh, though actors develop it, actually acting can contribute to partial development of presence if, uh, if it's not too, uh, shall we say, polluted by egoism. Knowing that you're an actor in life is actually not a bad thing. Actor on the stage. Blessings, come in, chai bhajis. We have a secret recipe of chai. Wow, you brought enough, that's for sure. Sarah's secret chai recipe is, our, is going to be our treat tonight. Um, so, are we getting this? You know, I used to say, and still do, be aware of your breath, sense your body, listen to your shape. <laughs> Don't be distracted. So we're learning these basic human things, like not, not letting tension wander. <laughs> Just learning to be present. The, um, the adab of the sokat. You know? um, it's like the story I tell back in my old hometown of Chelm in Poland, where uh, at the yeshiva there. It was a very good school. And one day some Polish noblemen were gall galloping around, probably drunk, shooting off their guns, and they said, oh, let's go, let's, let's gallop around the yeshiva, and they did. And um, not one student looked up from their book. So what were they learning? More than what was in the book. We're learning how to master attention. Learning what their intention was, what their priority was. Um, <clears throat> and the rabbi of that town, when he would wait for the bus, the bus stop, everybody else would be kind of looking up the road, and there's the bus coming. They asked the rabbi once, how come you never look up the street? He says, will that help the bus come sooner? So, presence. Ah, yes. Be aware of your breath. Sense your body. Be aware of the state of your heart at this moment. Be aware of your thoughts that come and go. Meditate while living. Serving, working. So this is just the first step. And Salah can be an opportunity to practice this. Anything can be an opportunity to practice this. But some things that are repeated again and again are especially useful because you, it becomes like a mirror, becomes a, a kind, another kind of framework in which you um, cultivate Awareness from beginning to end, which is the third of the items here, which is develop continuity or sustainability in awareness. Well, let's stay with presence for a moment. Maybe we don't, don't need to rush on. Is this making sense? Anything confusing in what I've said? Anybody want to add?
add anything to that? Do you see its beauty? You see how it might be something worth cultivating? You know, and without it, you understand what life is like without it. We're just in effect. We're just, you know, a straw in the wind. Without intention, without a center, without also knowing that part of yourself which is deeper than your thoughts, deeper than your emotions. We could do this, we could do a practice sometime. We sat for a long time tonight, so I won't. I, we need a half hour to do it properly, but it could take you behind your thoughts and behind your feelings. It's not so hard. Then you would, we would clearly experience that. I think most, all of you have, whether you know it or not, have touched that place where that is behind the thinking mind, that is the <coughs> source, the origin of consciousness in you. I know it sounds like really highfalutin and far away, and it's not. not really, it's your natural state. And when you get familiar with that natural state, then you can have your thoughts. In fact, you can think better. You can focus your thoughts with intentions. Uh, not that everything needs to be intentional, but it might be nice if some aspects of our life were intentional. And then you can leave other aspects of your life to be very spontaneous and free. Get the important things down. You know, one of them might be worship nothing but God. Get that straight. And then a lot of things fall into place. Uh, make all your cares into a single care, and Allah will see to all your cares. Be the servant of one master and not a thousand. Trust in the beneficence of the universe. So the second point is intention. And uh, many levels of intention. After sufficient observation of the self in action, which is presuming a lot actually, that we be able to really observe ourselves, after learning from experience, reason draws certain conclusions, derives certain principles, and decides upon a course of action. You, know, you get burned, you, you're a little more careful about fire. You, know, you have an accident, you're a little more care a little bit more careful about moving through space, etc., uh, etc. Et so we learn from our experience, and reason is one way of understanding reason. And we're going over real basics, you know, just to be clear with our language. Reason is is deduces these principles from our experience, and then says, "Oh, I'll never do that again," or "I'll do it differently this time," or. Uh, it's let's uh, measure twice, hammer once. The carpenter tells you. <laughs> yeah, good principle. Um, so reason is a great tool. Um, one of our teachers used to say, you know, when you're beset with. Uh, random and irrational fears and worries. Use your reason to corral your subconscious mind, and your, meaning your, all your thoughts and emotions. For example, somebody has a phobia about <coughs> airplanes, getting on an airplane, afraid they're going to die. Well, okay, you can only die once on an airplane. Uh, so you 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 corral that fear. You sort of build a wall around it and say, 
okay, uh, if I get on this airplane, I'm either going to die or I'm not going to die on this airplane. But at least I don't have to die a hundred times worrying about it. It's little mental exercises like this. Because reason does uh, transfer its argument to the subconscious mind. And can begin to put the subconscious mind to rest. Reason can also, reason and uh, holy ideas, meaning transformative ideas, can create a receptivity in the deepest levels of the subconscious mind, a receptivity to spirit, a receptivity to the divine, which is also part of our process of human development to have that uh, deep receptivity in ourselves to the grace of God, to the guidance of that God of infinite intelligence, of infinite mercy. Um, and that's the product of, or the result of, many things, including all, all of the teachings. If the teachings are coherent, true, um, from a trustworthy source, uh, from a realized human being, and as well as shaped by the best values and wisdom of the tradition. All of these things working together work on your mind just like reading Rumi and other beautiful things that begin to form a coherent uh, sense of existence that deepens or uh, in its, increases in its granularity, as they say in graphics. Uh, the mercy of it all, the grace of it all, the beauty, the intelli intelligent generosity of it all begins to be clearer and clearer and clearer. Why? Because you remember some beautiful poems, you remember some holy revelations, you remember the words of the prophets, and you begin to trust them. Not trust them. You only trust them because you verify them somewhere along the line. You can be a skeptic about this. Perfectly okay. You should be skeptical. Skeptical enough to actually evaluate through your own experience. Is there truth here or not? But along the way, you may discover the value of a well-formulated intention. Because energy follows thought, as Hermes Trismegistus taught us. Excuse me. Energy follows thought. Uh, so, Make your thought, give your thought direction. Not a closed direction, not a prejudiced direction, but an open direction, a direction towards the truth. Uh, meaning, there are certain formulations that open up reality. There are others that may close down reality. I'm not going to repeat any formulations that close down reality. There are plenty uh, plenty of irrational theologies. There are too many irrational theologies already running rampant in the world. But something like la ilaha illallah. There is no God but God. There is no divinity but the divinity. There is no divinity but that which is truly divine. It doesn't define it. It doesn't uh, conceptualize it. It just reminds you to keep going in a certain direction putting your meager conceptions behind you as you move towards that reality. La ilaha illallah, cleaning the heart of our half-baked opinions, uh, insufficient conceptions, and opening ourselves to the wonder of existence, 
to the meaning that emerges when our hearts are clear, when the mind is relatively empty, when the mind is not filled with conditioning, and when it sinks into that state of pure being and openness, then uh, either this reality is meaningful and beautiful and intelligible, or it's totally arbitrary random chaos. We'll find out. If it looks like totally arbitrary random chaos, that may be your mind. <laughs> that may be the mind you, uh, you know, inherited from television. Or even your educational system. But clear that away. Be silent. Be still. Watch your breath. Call upon who. Uh, and then experience what's there. See how your life changes. See how your relationships change. Especially when you can sustain that state and you're not jumping around between one from one distraction to another. We'll get to number three shortly. But we're still working on, on intention. Yes, Anna? When, when you were talking about presence, it struck me that I think sacred spaces, whether they're churches or mosques or temples, are actually they're the physical manifestation of what that state is supposed to feel and look yes. like. Yes. You know, they're they're clear, they're clean, and the only images, if there are images, are images of the divine. The church and the mosque, you know, it's light. And sort of that invitation to enter into, you can enter into the physical space and bring that space into yourself, and later you just, I think you don't have to be in a mosque or a church. Yes, exactly. Let me recommend to all of us on Sufism.org, under Threshold Society, under that tab, Threshold Society, are two other tabs, one called Adab, another one called Basics of Practice and each of which has a few articles. These are all critical articles. If you want to understand what we're doing here, you should read these articles like once a year. Not just once, once a year. And one of those articles is called Entering Sacred Space. And what's in those articles has, you know, I'm not boasting about this, but they're not written in any other books. This is material is not, comes from, doesn't come from books. It comes from lived experience, and from our teachers um, who helped us to understand the importance of why we try to maintain sacred space and what its purpose is. Its purpose and the purpose of adab and, and the service within this space and the hospitality and the brotherhood and sisterhood. It's all here to maximize affection remembrance, um, and ultimately communion with the Divine. So certain conditions help us to realize those things that are much harder to realize under other circumstances. But if we can realize them under one set of circumstances, we could realize them in the middle of a war if necessary. And temple, templum, is like a reflection on earth of the higher world. The idea of the template, you know, there's a higher template, there's a template in the higher world, and there's a template in this world. I was once sitting in Lama Foundation when it was just being built, and in front of me was this very geometric garden. It was mostly stones. There weren't too many plants growing in it yet. And I'm sitting there on a hillside looking at this geometry of garden, and Merchant Sam Lewis walks by. One of the original American, one of the, oh, one, at that time, the one and only Amer real American Sufi. 
and he walked by. He was a funny-looking guy. You know, he had a kind of a scrawny beard, and he was just kind of kooky. God bless him. And he walked by, and he wasn't paying any attention to me. He's kind of looking at the garden. He looks at the garden, and he looks up in the sky. He looks at the garden, and he looks up in the sky, and he says to himself, because he wasn't looking at me, he said, it's amazing what people create when they don't even know what they're creating. Template. And the word contemplation, con means come with, to, to get together with the template, the higher template of existence. So in Arabic we say marakaba, which is to, is watchfulness, literally it means watchfulness. So. What a state of marakaba Murshid Sam had at that moment. The garden and up at the heavens and seeing the relationship. He wasn't performing for anybody, he wasn't trying to impress anybody, he was just muttering to himself. The power of reason mobilizes itself through language. The power of reason mobilizes itself through language. A few well-chosen words, a crafted phrase. Energy follows thought. Intention is constructive on a higher plane and shapes manifestation. Each month threshold offers a theme that could be held as an intention and reminder. And then I've, in each of these sections, I've to make it practical, I realize that Maybe I haven't been making, we haven't been able to realize how to practice some of these things until we've shown something really simple to do. You know, Americans like to be told what to do. And it's okay. And once you figure out it's not so complicated if you do something with it. Compose an intention for yourself, write it out, and place it somewhere where it can be seen by you. Each morning as you wake up, recall this intention, and likewise each night as you lie down in bed, remind yourself of your intention and how much you remembered or acted on it. Simple. But you have to do it to find out whether it's useful or not. And as I've said many times in Islam, the value of niya intention is is very clearly addressed. Um, it's I hate to use the language of reward and punishment, but you'll get what, what's meant here. It's said that if you make an a good intention, even if you don't follow it through, you get one gold star. If you if you make an intention and you actually perform it, you get ten gold stars. If you make a bad intention, this is actually a hadith, I believe. If you make a bad intention and you don't act upon it, okay, it sort of gets erased. But if you make a bad intention and act on it, okay, one, one negative. But a, a good intention acted on tenfold. A good intention not even acted on worth one, one of something. And um, that's the power of the mind. That's how the mind works. Uh, yeah. And also, actions, another hadith, actions will be judged by intentions. It's even a legal principle. At least it has to be factored in. So. You may have even done something good, but if your intention was not good, the reality is that you perform something for an impure motive. This is all really kind of uh, obvious once it's expressed. Uh, it's common sense, and yet how little most human beings live with common sense. Okay, now we get to the exciting part. It's getting deeper and deeper. 
when awareness can be sustained, the quality of life changes. Instead of jumping from thought to thought, from one emotional state to another, from one object of attention to another, the awakened soul can move beyond superficialities and experience the spiritual nature of reality. Again, I apologize, it's a long sentence, but sometimes that's good. When awareness can be sustained, the quality of life changes. Instead of jumping from thought to thought, from one emotional state to another, from one object of attention to another, the awakened soul can move beyond superficialities and experience the spiritual nature of reality. Less dominated by inner talking, conflicting desires and imaginary fears, the essential self begins to perceive the meaning and grace within events. Begins to perceive the meaning and grace within events. Imagine that. It's no longer an arbitrary, random, accidental world. A world of grace, a world of guidance, a world of <coughs> subtle gifts and subtle meanings and untold mysteries and beauties. Rebecca shared with me her amazement at a gazal of Rumi's that really captures the ecstasy of this. Rebecca, do you remember what page you're on? <laughs> it's in my phone, which is in the car. The face of that beauty. The face of is that the beauty. Name of the oh, that's all. Yeah. And then it's the second page. Yep. It's called the I face of that picture. beauty. Thank you. Yes. And then that the helps. Poems. You know, when we say that the Divine is the Beloved and has a beautiful face, it's a metaphor, and, um, but a really good metaphor. It was just a glance, but it became a fountain that drowned my heart. If the power of that love made me seem like a pagan, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? That goblet of ruby-colored wine, that life-bestowing water of life, that insight of eternal karma, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? The calm and peace of cheerful souls, and the shade of those interwoven curls, in the feasting and festivity of the great king, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? We lost our colors in the light of your hue. 
a million miles beyond the world of existence. The moment our souls became such idiots, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? In love, an army has risen up under the shade of the king's canopy. And if my heart has fallen down along the way, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? Bending over in sorrow like the new moon, running headlong, face down like the shadow, hearing the call from within the realm of heart, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? When that moon burned up Jupiter and broke into pieces the idols of Azar, Azar was Abraham's father who was an idol maker, then if the heart chose infidelity, idolatry, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? I remarked to Rebecca that he's using that word infidelity ironically here because it's not a true infidelity or idolatry. It's, it's uh, maybe perceived by people at a different level of consciousness as, as that. He knows it's not. If 18,000 worlds, O soul, were filled with my ramblings and with that flame of my inward state, O oh, soul, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? And if we could do justice to the path of love, and if our joy could be worthy of that moonlight and that sunshine, and if we opened our eyes afresh onto that love, wouldn't it be for the face of that beauty? And by the wine whose fragrance and by the wine whose fragrance caused my drunkenness. And all the wine glasses we smashed. And when we became free from the disgrace of self, wasn't it by the face of that beauty? The garden came alive into union with a spring more beautiful than all four seasons. And Shams of Tabriz, as its very essence, wasn't it for the face of that beauty? So what I said so prosaically here, Instead of jumping from thought to thought, from one emotional state to another, from one object of attention to another, in all of our sort of superficial mind states, the awakened soul can move beyond superficialities to the face of that beauty and experience the spiritual nature of reality. And out of that comes this incredible creativity. These incredible images, these incredible realizations. Bam, 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 one after another. He keeps hitting us with these, you know, like truths in poetic form just to kind of awaken us to the uh, to the beauty he was overwhelmed by. And he calls it all simply the face of that beauty. And he's hearkening back to a Quranic verse, which is beautifully calligraphed in my study. God belongs the east and the west, and wherever you turn is the face of God. So I say, yeah, take the Quran literally. 
return is the face of God. You have to become a mystic. So, these are really practical things. Then I give some exercises, okay? Simple practices. Practice one. Using prayer beads, invoke a divine name, being sure that you are conscious with each repetition. When you notice that you have slipped into forgetfulness, start again from the beginning. Choose a number of repetitions within your capacity. 33, 66, 99. And intend to sustain your conscious awareness for that number. Very simple. Like a calisthenic, of a zikr. Calisthenic. A zikr workout. Practice two. While taking a walk, breathe the name the who. Eleven exhalations. Gradually increase your capacity to thirty-three. Always remember these are not mere sounds, but the names of the divine. So, as these very simple practices become a way of life, when we make it a practice, an exercise, it's a little bit artificial. It's like when my physical therapist says, you know, do this. You know, twist your spine that way and don't move that because you don't want to torque that. Just do this and do it like this. It's all an exercise and it's good for a while, but eventually you learn how to incorporate those things more spontaneously and, uh, and let your life be your exercise. Let your life be your zikr. But along the way, it's helpful to have these reminders and to have these simple practices. When we do salat together, and somebody's leading the prayer, you are free. You don't have to do anything but be present. Do you know that? A Sufi imam told me this many years ago. I didn't understand. He said, when the imam is leading the prayer, you don't ha have to even be repeating the fatiha in your brain. You just be there. And do the postures. But be there. Be in that state of worship. You can recite the Fatiha, but you, you don't have to feel obliged to be mumbling every syllable under your breath. It's an exercise of presence and remembrance. And the fact that it isn't, it also involves these postures and the fact that it's preceded by ablution, which is an electromagnetic cleansing of the body that, in a way, uh, is a reset mechanism, an electromagnetic reset. Um, ablution may be the most important practice on our path, because it precedes everything else. Once you're in a state of ablution, you're free. Why not worship when you're in that state? Make everything worship. And it's water, water that does it. But if there's no water, you can use dust. Because again, intention counts. If you are, it's not just uh, the obligations of the world of form. Water is best. But you're caught out in the desert, there's no water for miles around, and you want to be in that state of ritual ablution. You take the cleanest sand you can find, and you let that be your water. That's the mercy of the divine to allow you to be purified. 
these days, you know, there's a lot of nonsense going on out in the world. It's kind of amazing. Take a deep breath. Do ablution upon ablution. You know, you think you're in a state of ablution. It's okay to do it again. That's actually very interesting. And when you do ablution, know that you're purifying yourself on all sorts of levels. Your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your head. Um, all of these human functions need to be cleansed. And um, sometimes when you're in a really funky state, ablution may be the best practice you can use to shift to something different. Instead of being in the funk, saying, you know, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to get out of it, go find some fresh water, take off your socks, <laughs> cleanse, wash, breathe. Rumi could say what he says because he he got so cleansed by Shamsi degrees that he could perceive the ecstasy of being itself. That is what being is, it's ecstasy. But, you know, opinions get in the way. Judgments get in the way. It's quite beautiful in Arabic. You, some of you may have heard this already, but the word for being is wujud, W-U-J-U-D, wujud. And it means being. Some take that to mean being, namely physical existence. But the metaphysicians, the mystics, know that being is not this stuff, that being is that which precedes all this stuff. Being is the source. Uh, being is the higher reality. Wujud, being. Wajada, the verb related to wujud, means to find. Okay. So, what you find, the only thing you can truly find if you're really finding, is wujud. And the result of Wajada, finding wujud, is wajda, which is ecstasy. That's all built into the language. Could you say that very last about wajda? When you find being, you experience ecstasy. When you find wajada, being, wujud, you find wajd, ecstasy. So ecstasy is what's found when you get everything else out of the way. The dog is barking. Uh, the dog found his ecstasy for a moment. Found something anyway. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Watched. So, remember I started this by saying that Rumi found this, the, by going so deep, by being so cleansed, by his relationship with Shamsi Tabriz, and all he suffered through in that, to be purified, all he had to let go of, all he had to, all that had to burn away, left him with just the ecstasy of pure being which is the face of that beauty, which he could then amplify into all of these incredible metaphors and images, all of which were not words. They were not words for him. Somebody who lives through poetry like this, he's not there pondering, gee, what would sound cool? Uh, <laughs> no. He was going, oh my God, 
one realization after another, bam, 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 bam. It's like, it's like, this watch is like, it's like this, it's, and it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like, it's like getting drunk on just the smell of wine. And being so taken with that, that you don't care about the wine glasses anymore. Who needs the wine glasses? Who needs forms? Who needs the idol, idolatry of forms? It all has meaning. I mean, everything in there could go to every image. And if you know the context, if you know the spiritual universe he was in and what he's referring to, you understand that these are not just wild, subjective metaphors, that they really reveal an underlying science and methodology and, and metaphysics and understanding of the structure of reality. And sometimes, too, it's not that a poem can be explained in terms of theories, but when you know, you might say, the metaphysics, and you go, wow, what a great way to say that. I'd rather prefer to hear it in poetry than in, from Thomas Aquinas, for instance. Uh, <clears throat> what triggered my uh, fullness around that was Monday night when we were in the Math Navi. And that particular passage we read ended with saying uh, something like, if I say more, it will destroy the form. And then uh, just opening the book in my meditation, it was like, oh, this is the perfect example of that. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was such a gift. When you touch your forehead to the ground in prayer, this is what you're honoring, or this is what you're drawing near to. The Quran says, so appropriately, bow down and draw near, bow down and draw near. The purpose of that prostration is to get near to the reality. And because you are a being with a physical body, you also have to allow for the body to experience what we're talking about. And that's why these postures are part of it. They, they are an accessory to it. And uh, we can learn, as Eunice says, everything we found, we found through the body. The Torah, the Psalms, the Gospel, the Quran, we found it all in the body. But it was a body that was exercised, trained, surrendered. And rather than thinking that the body is the end point or the purpose, we have to remember the other thing that Rumi said. He said, sacrifice this cow. Sacrifice or slaughter this cow. I died as mineral, became plant, and began to develop. I died as plant and entered the state of animals. I died to animality and entered the state of the human. And one day I will die and transcend this humanness and pop my head up among the angels. And one day, I will transcend even the state of the angels to experience non-existence from him we have come to him we return and then quotes from the Quran everything is returning to that state of non-existence so that's how Rumi and so many centuries ago mapped out the course of life mineral to plant to animal to human to angelic and then beyond an interior journey Okay. I mean, I mean, I mean.